Welcome to Inside the Hut. I'm your host, Brooke Pollock, founder of Hut Capital. Inside the Hut is a podcast that talks with leading blockchain venture capital investors to dive deep into their firm, strategy, and approach to a complex space at the forefront of innovation. You can find this and other episodes on Spotify and other podcast players or on our website at www.hutcapital.com. The content of each episode of Inside the Hut is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any Hut Capital fund. Please note that Hut Capital and its affiliates may also maintain or be considering investments in or related to the companies, funds, assets, or strategies discussed in the podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments and related disclosures, please see www.hutcapital.com. All right, we're really excited to have with us today Joe Egan from Anagram. Anagram is a diversified holding company focused on the blockchain and crypto ecosystem where Joe is a co-founder. So thanks for joining us, Joe. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Brooke. Yeah, so to get started, would love to just understand your background, your history, how you got to be where you are today. Yeah, it's a long and winding story. I went to college in Washington, D.C., and all of my buddies were going into finance. So I figured that was what I was supposed to do. And then 17 years later, I looked back and realized that I didn't want to be doing that. So that said, I think it was a great foundation for me to figure out financial markets, investing and operating, broadly speaking. So I began my career in investment banking, did that for two years in the media telecom M&A space, and then went directly into the hedge fund world. I spent about six or seven years doing effectively merger arbitrage and event-driven investing, taking what I learned in M&A and applying it to the liquid markets. In the early days of 2008, I transitioned from the investing side to the operating side, where I then started sourcing and helping develop emerging hedge fund managers, basically helping them build out their businesses and get them launched. And then... In 2014, I transitioned to become a pure operator as the COO for a long-term equity hedge fund, but also ran research teams within that fund and had my hands in both investing and in operating. But then it was 2017. It felt like hedge funds were becoming increasingly commoditized. It felt more and more like I was defending a business instead of building a business. And so decided to take some time to figure out what I wanted to do. And it was in that downtime over the summer of 2017 that a friend of mine reached out to me and said, hey, would you ever think about getting involved in the blockchain ecosystem? And I said, no, thank you. I don't really even know what that means. That said, he did convince me to go down the rabbit hole of crypto. And I came out the other side and I called him back and I said, absolutely. And that was how I was first introduced to Polychain, which was one of the first venture capital firms dedicated to crypto. And so I ended up moving my family out to San Francisco. I spent about five-ish years, four and a half, five years at Polychain, where I was the president. It was an amazing ride. We grew from $100 million business to a multi-billion dollar business in just a short period of time and just expanded both in terms of what we did on the investing side and the businesses that we built. But in 2021, I really wanted to control my own destiny, own my own business and do it all on my own. And so I ended up leaving that spring and over the course of the summer and bonded with Lily Liu, who is the co-founder of Anagram. And we saw eye to eye and a lot of structural and unique ways to attack the crypto space. And that was really the beginning of Anagram, which we've now been doing for the past two plus years. 
Awesome. Yeah, I appreciate the background. So we'll come back to a little more detail on Anagram itself. But yeah, in terms of your history, I mean, I'm curious what it was like building Polychain in the early days. You guys were quite a small firm at first, grew to be at one point one of, if not probably the largest asset managers in crypto. What was that experience like growing so quickly, and especially within a nascent market like this? I mean, it was an amazing ride. It's funny because when I joined, I think the AUM was probably something like $100 million. And even at that time, people were saying, you know, you guys are too big. In addition to them thinking we were crazy for having a fund dedicated to crypto or what we were investing in was crazy. It was also the fact that we were $100 million was just unfathomable to people. And then by the end of 2017, based on asset growth, capital raises, but also performance, we were up to a billion dollars. And so it just became more and more throughout 2017. Everyone was at least trying to learn about the space. And so getting people up the curve while also building a business and a research team and an investment team and an operations team, it was crazy, but it was crazy in all the best ways. I think we were the first crypto firm to be registered with the SEC. We had all of these firsts that we were sort of like paving the way on. And so in that sense, it was a totally different challenge from the traditional hedge fund world where every one of the 10,000 hedge funds that exist today gets sort of boilerplate documents from a lawyer and like, this is just what you do. And the process is kind of wrote or standardized. And here it was anything but that. And every day was a, a totally unique challenge and hurdle to overcome. But it was also a unique opportunity to figure out unique ways that we could source deals, unique ways to service companies in our portfolio, unique ways to we started something called Polychain Labs, right? This was a staking enterprise that later grew into staking and custody and key management, all because our balance sheet was so large that we really needed these assets to be serviced in a way that at that time, service providers could not handle. Coinbase custody came after Polychain launched by at least 12 months. So when we were just getting going, even the idea of custody was not even possible. Today, you know, you think about the custody landscape and you have increasing opportunities to do all these amazing things from custody to staking, none of this existed before. And so we weren't just investors, we were also builders. And so we were not just expanding the number of funds that we had in the venture side, but we had, I think when I had launched, we had launched four other operating companies. One was an incubator, one was the staking business labs, one was a consulting business. We had a DeFi like trading arm. It was just sort of ever expansionary. And we were thinking about novel ways to structure things in this space to attack alpha in different ways, right? It's one thing in web two to just say, I'm going to buy this thing and then sell this thing 10 years later and then make some money here. I think crypto uniquely enables us all to create alpha in many, many different ways and across the life cycle of an asset, which is totally different than any of the life cycles of a traditional asset. So that opened up all of these opportunities for us to think novelly about investing servicing those investments, and then structurally finding ways to, I guess, generate alpha in a positive some way that wasn't possible. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And I'm imagining that that's played into how you built Anagram. But I guess to start, explain to us, what is Anagram? Yeah, I think you said it well. It's a diversified crypto holding company. I think playing back to Polychain, there was a lot of things that we were doing unique, but also most of the structures that people had approached crypto with were traditional structures. And so Lily and I, when we started the business, wanted to think from first principles about what an appropriate structure would be for the crypto ecosystem. Our technology is unique in that it's open source, it's permissionless, it's 
got these composable and interoperable features that really don't exist anywhere else. And so in a traditional world, you'd have someone like Polychain or an A16Z or whoever it is, they would have fund one, fund two, fund three. They would make financial capital deployments and then hope to monetize those. Or in the other hand, you would have Coinbase, an operating company, and they would hire human capital to deploy that to build an exchange. And that works great in Web 2. But our feeling was that in Web 3, you have a unique opportunity to actually deploy both human and financial capital into these markets. And so what we wanted to do was think dynamically about that capital allocation on one singular balance sheet such that in different market conditions and different opportunities, you might want to deploy human capital or financial capital or both, and then use those interoperably to the greatest extent possible. And so one very easy, like early example of this would be if you had, let's say, invested in the seed stage of Compound, you would also theoretically, when Compound launches, want to deploy Ethereum into a lending pool to add liquidity into this product that you've also invested in. That means you're making more money on your ETH deployment. It also means that you're helping out the founder. You might also want to build a tranching mechanism on top of it. In traditional financial investing where things are delineated by fund, ETH might be in one fund, Compound in another, Uniswap in another. And so it's limiting in that sense. Also, you are probably not going to be able to build on compound out of a fund structure. And so the idea here was, how can we create that single balance sheet, think novelly about capital deployment? And so that's how we got to this holding structure concept where we do really three things internally. We build, we advise, and we invest. And we think about them in that order. So it seems obvious, but we have an engineering team. We build products. We either open source them or spin them out into their own individual companies or work side by side with partners in more of an incubator model. We also advise companies in what I would call like a crypto native merchant banking type of model. So a project might need help hiring a CTO. We can provide them with that in return for equity or tokens in their business. We do anything from hardcore ops to hardcore engineering and everything in between. And then we also invest and we do that directly off our balance sheet. And all of these services are on one single standalone balance sheet. So if, again, we invest in Compound, we'll use our engineering team to build a tranching mechanism on top of it. And if we want to be long Ethereum, which we are, we would also put that into the lending pool. And all of that's possible because of this unique structure. Okay, makes a lot of sense. So you've built a traditional venture firm. Now you're building it through a holding company structure. How does building a team and building a firm differ doing it through this structure versus a traditional looking venture fund? Here, it's less intuitive how you sequence the hiring. And I think that's also a little bit of a lesson learned for me. I've always felt that you want to hire the best people that are the best culture fits, and that's how you get the best possible outcomes. That said, for our business model to work perfectly, which I think we're really getting into the space where that is, and we can get more into that, it's beneficial to have an engineering team, an operations team, an investment team, right? You want all of these teams in place theoretically at the same time, but that's also presumably impossible. And so to say we should start the flywheel with the engineering team or with the investment team or with an advisor or a new advisory team member, it's hard to say like which one of those is the best to actually start with. You just want to sort of hit go and have 25 people and be able to do all of the things at once. And that's very much my personality. I think it's like, let's do all of the things at once. That said, I would have said, let's start with the engineering team. But I think that was the one place where at the time we launched, it was actually harder to find the people that we really wanted on the engineering side. And and that actually was the team, I think, that came to fruition in totality last. And so 
now that we have a team of about 25 people across five on engineering and five to six on operations and similarly on investments, that flywheel is going where now we make an investment and we can go to that company and say, okay, what do you need? We can build it for you. Or we're building something and we see something that might want to build on top of it, and then we can go make that investments. And so we want to build alongside of our investments and invest alongside of the things that we've built. And that's where that flywheel really kicks in and is highly valuable to us. And so now I think we're at the place where it basically creates its own validation. It's a positive sum game and it creates a better and better sourcing mechanism as that flywheel gets kicked off faster and faster. Yeah, makes sense. You mentioned hiring engineers. That's one thing I was curious about was you're kind of competing with the market in terms of hiring engineering talent. We heard a lot from folks, especially, let's say, before the market collapsed last year, that hiring good engineers was really, really hard. Very competitive. Salaries were pretty high. Have you seen that change with the change in market sentiment? You know, is it easier to hire good engineers than it was 18 months ago? I think it's always hard to hire great people. And so maybe just going back to the last question, one of the first things that I did when Lily and I started Anagram was I reached out to my friend Brennan, who is, I think, one of the best recruiters and talent professionals out there. And I said, would you join the team? And that was something that I do think that we got really right because he and now Alex, who also works with on the talent side, have been massively instrumental in our ability to hire, well, source and then hire great team members across everything from engineering to operations. That said, I do think the market for engineers is always going to be tight. There's a lot of opportunities in crypto, but there is, I think, a bigger opportunity for us on the human capital side, broadly speaking, now more so than there ever really has been in the past. If you think about the market generally, funds are under their high watermark. Companies are out of runway and shutting down. Companies are having a harder time getting funding. And so the competitive landscape on both the valuation side for investing, but also I think even more importantly on the human capital side for finding unique talent is massively moved in our favor relative to 2020, 2021, when you could raise money at any valuation and pay people as much as you want. And so now I think we are able to offer people a unique opportunity. Hey, you can build this great thing. It can be something that it might even be your idea. And so that has led us to actually expanding the human capital network that we have within the Anagram build team, as we call it. The engineering team now has just launched an EIR program. So maybe you're a founder, you want to come work with Anagram. You can work with our team of engineers. They'll help you develop your idea. You can sit for 12 months, collect a paycheck, have some fun with us, think about great ideas, iterate on those ideas with our team, both engineering, investment, operations, whatever it is. And so maybe you are a founder who is out of runway, or maybe you just want to leave Coinbase and are scared about the market conditions. This is, I think, a great time for both new founders and for ourselves to be able to find these partnerships that maybe wouldn't have been possible a couple of years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned Brendan and Alex, who head up the talent side of things. Do they just work on hiring with an Anagram, or do they also work with your portfolio companies? Yeah, both, definitely. I mean, obviously, human capital at Anagram is the most important thing, right? What we do is allocate capital either to humans or to investments. And the closer we are to building something, the higher the ROI, right? If you built something yourself, you own 100% of it. If you invest in it, you own some small percentage of it. And so when we think about hiring, it's always human capital is the most valuable resource that we have. That said, that doesn't take up 100% of their time. And that's where we can really be helpful on the advisory side. So many of 
the new clients, I'll call them for lack of a better word, that we have on the advisory side are people who are in need of those engineers, which are hard to come by. And so that's a great way for us to help out these projects. So whether we've you know, advised your project or have invested in your project, we are able to source amazing talent. And I think that's one of the great pieces of feedback that we've received from founders is how productive that talent team has become. And then down the line, I think building out that bench of talent and knowing the broader engineering ecosystem lets us, again, kick into that flywheel. Hey, we know this founder or we know this person. We've either hired them or worked with them in the past. Now we can turn that in itself into a platform, an employment platform of sorts, where hopefully everyone can be able to resource that down the line. Got it. Makes sense. Yeah. So you're talking about the building side of things and clearly that could be quite impactful where to your point, if you make an investment, you own some assumedly minority position there. You know, if you build something, you own maybe majority or the whole thing initially, but it's also easier said than done. How do you guys work through kind of ideation and what to build and what you guys want to focus your time and attention there? I think about it as a matrix and Whoever's listening to this is probably going to get sick of me hearing about the human and financial capital. But the best opportunities to me are ones where you have a financial opportunity and a human capital opportunity. So there might be a great opportunity to build an exchange, but you might not have a great security engineer to build the back end of that exchange or you know, great exchange engineer or, or et cetera. So the best opportunities for us are ones where we see an opportunity in the market. We then explore that marketplace Let's just stick with the exchange example. Okay, are there other exchanges in the marketplace? Everyone's going out of business, FTX explodes. Okay, now there's a unique opportunity. Okay, great, are people building in that space already? Turns out, yes, there's a bunch of people already building in that space. Okay, let's go find someone that we think is going to execute really well on that plan and we'll deploy financial capital into that. Or no, there is no one else doing it. Okay, let's actually go and if we have the right people to lead that project, go and build that ourselves. And if not, let's solve that problem, right? Let's either go find a founder and have them work on this project with us or go and convince someone to go start this project and invest in them. So when we find someone who's at the upper right portion of that matrix, as I think about it on the sort of like human capital, financial capital diagram, that's when we think, okay, this is something that we need to build. So for us, data in Web3 is a really interesting opportunity. I think it's a really interesting unlock. I think it leads to an amazing array of opportunities from better understanding what is going on in Web3, but also better ability for people, let's say, to advertise direct to consumer as opposed to using Web2 versions of data. That said, data is structured entirely different in Web3. Okay, so how can we start to think about different ways to index that data and then use that index data for a whole array and suite of services? And by the way, it's something that we want internally when we're thinking about making an investment, let's say in the liquid markets, how do we get better information that exists on chain, but you know, is probably somehow difficult to understand. And so we built this data platform. We then built a bunch of developer tools on top of that data platform. We've now built a data graph and ability to use that data in any parameterizable way you can imagine. We can use it on the investment side, but it also has external customers as well. So now that's a company that will eventually spin out, I hope, and then go raise money for that as well. That's awesome. So I guess as a holding company, you effectively have shareholders rather than limited partners like a traditional venture fund. How does that change? Is it any different in terms of how you guys measure success and kind of your long-term goals versus if you were just a normal venture fund? Yes, I think so. If you're a venture fund 
which is a great business model. So I'm not trying to condemn that version of the world. We're launching a fund as well. That said, I do think that, especially in the way we've structured it, which itself is unique, and the way we've created the preferred share class, we, as the partners at Anagram, are purely incentivized by ROI. So every day, I would rather invest a smaller amount of money in something that has a higher upside than I would a large amount of money that has less upside, right? So if you think about the fund structure, if I invest a million dollars and it becomes worth a hundred million dollars, I've just made 99 versus if I invest a hundred million dollars in something and it goes to 199, I've also made 99. In both of those, the return of capital is the same, but I've made more management fees in one version of that than in the other. So for us and the way we think about capital allocation is how can we maximize ROI If you build something and you own 100% of it and it's successful, that's a massive outcome versus a financial capital deployment. The returns are almost definitionally lower because you are actually deploying financial capital into that as opposed to just human capital. And so ROI, while still, I think, incredibly interesting in crypto is lower. So when we think about making an investment, whether in a human or in a financial markets opportunity, what do we think the upside of this idea is in the next 10 years? And we are incentivized to grow the value of our balance sheet with the smallest amount of capital. And so the way we do that to me is getting closer and closer to the founder in that relationship. Like the best example would be if we can have, let's say, an EIR come in and we can help them soup to nuts, build something out. We'd rather own bigger chunks of these things than we would just be sort of like a late stage investor where your ownership percentage is, let's say, far less, but your ability to allocate significant amounts of capital is far greater. Yeah, makes sense. So we talked a bit about Anagram as a company and how you guys operate and kind of why you structured it this way. But a lot of your time is actually spent investing and making investment decisions. Is there a general thesis that you guys abide by as investors or kind of certain focus areas that you guys are focused on as investors? Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a thesis, but it's also a thesis that changes all the time. And if you're not waking up and challenging that on a somewhat regular, if not daily basis, you're probably going to miss something. And our space has grown so much and there are so many opportunities that it pays to continue to challenge your own presumptions as much as possible. I would say one of the many things that we've been interested more recently, I mentioned already, which is data, unique ways that data can be indexed, used, and monetized in this space. I think one of the great use cases in Unlocks will be advertising, how brands can better find users. So how can you combine your data graph across Web 2 and Web 3? That's a really interesting challenge. There's one company in particular, Masa, that we're close with that is working on that exact challenge. So imagine I know all of your tweets and every time you bought a CryptoPunk and that you have an NFT ticket for the Yankees game last night in one wallet. Like That's a really interesting data graph that doesn't really exist in today's world. Another one is payments. And that is something I think given Lily's background, both with Solana, but also just generally our view of where crypto is headed. I think a lot of people in our space, because of DeFi Summer a couple of years ago, have been focused on the transactional version of DeFi, which is buy-sell, right? Like, how do I, how do Brooke and I trade against each other in Uniswap as opposed to send-receive, which was kind of the original intended use case of crypto. And now that we have more scalable, higher TPS better throughput, like all these better feature sets within blockchain technology, maybe just sticking with the Solana example, payments are now 
more feasible in a way that they weren't if you had to pay two to $50 to use your MetaMask wallet to send Ethereum between the two of us. So ways that we can expand that payment landscape, payment space, DeFi, these are, I think, really interesting spaces to explore. And I think people are just starting to scratch the surface on that. A third one would be developer tools. And I mean that fairly broadly. How can we make the usability of this technology easier and easier? Something as simple as key signing. I just mentioned MetaMask or your Phantom Wallet. Every time a transaction happens, you have to click a button. You have to have the browser extension. Your seed phrase is probably written down in 13 different places and sharded all over. Like if you're doing it right, it's not this easy task. So how can we make it easier for developers to operate in this ecosystem, but also how can we make it easier for users to not have to know that they're actually using a wallet or some other sort of key management tool in the background? And so one example of a company that we love in that space is Turnkey. Turnkey basically created a developer tool that's an API that developers can use to obfuscate the key management underlying any transactions, whether it's an exchange, a wallet, or really any service that you want to provide, you can do that. One great example here maybe of Anagram working with some of our projects in this sort of flywheel that I've been referencing, we invested in Turnkey at their seed round. We also adjusted their Series A. We think it's an amazing developer tool. And one of the reasons we wanted to double down in this most recent round is because we started using it for internal solutions. So when we're making different types of transactions internally, we use Turnkey. But in addition to that, we also built a progressive web app that has a key signer in it and open source that. And so now if you're a developer and you want to come build a progressive web app, you know, maybe you want to, I don't know, decentralize Instagram or something like that. You don't need to build the PWA and you don't need to build the key signer. And me as the user of the app that you just created, I, with the click of a button on my phone, have downloaded a wallet and can sign keys instantaneously without knowing that I'm actually doing that. So now we have an experience that's better for developers and better for users based on one really amazing development that Turnkey has sort of figured out, worked on, and, and provided with a simple API. Anyway, we could go on for days. So how do <laughs> throwing companies and themes out there? But those are three that I think are really interesting in the current landscape. Yeah, that's really helpful. And you mentioned progressive web apps a second ago. There's been a lot of talk around that concept within the crypto world, but for those who aren't familiar, what's a progressive web app? Yeah, so progressive web app is basically a a way to work around the Apple app store. They have a monopoly on an ability to effectively download technology onto your phone. And so because they generally are skeptical of crypto and now outright don't allow crypto apps to exist in their app store, what you can do with your phone is to actually pin a website to your home screen but that website on your mobile phone actually looks and feels exactly like an app. So if you were to go to our blog at anagram.xyz, you can actually see our article and you can download this app and pin it to your home screen. And again, it looks and feels exactly like an app, but you haven't gone through the app store. And in addition to this, you can get notifications and have all of the things that you would with an app like an Uber or a Lyft, where every time the driver gets closer, you get the notification and you know when he's there. This can all happen with Progressive Web App, which is, again, it's just a standard Explorer website that's pinned to your phone's homepage. Okay. I'm guessing Apple loves that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, they did enable notifications to exist with these Progressive Web Apps. So, yeah, I'll stay out of the Apple monopoly debate for the time being. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan. So you mentioned Solana a minute ago. I guess right now we're kind of on the back end of Breakpoint when we're recording this. 
A lot of conversation around the crypto space recently has been around Solana. So conversation wouldn't really be complete without talking about that a bit. In particular, your co-founder, Lily, is on the board of the Solana Foundation. So very deeply intertwined in that ecosystem. Anagram as a company, you guys has been active in Solana since your inception, I guess. Why is that a category that you guys are excited about, assuming you are and investing around that ecosystem? And do you guys care what people are building on if someone's building on Solana versus ETH versus L2 or any other layer one? How does that play into your kind of decision-making process? Yeah, we are fairly agnostic as to ecosystem that people are building in. I do think that there are some ecosystems where if there's not a lot going on, maybe we would be slightly more skeptical than if there were a lot going on. Simple example, if there's a thousand people using X and one person using Y, let's just go with the Y version. But at the same time, many of these new technologies that have fewer users are also relatively new or newer and building out those ecosystems. So we want to be open-minded as to where we are investing and what those ecosystems might look like in the future based on the tooling that they have and are going to be building out in the future and the new use cases that they enable. So we are definitely active in the Solana ecosystem and community. We're incredibly bullish on Solana and many of the things that are being built there. That said, we're also very active in the Cosmos community. We work very closely with the Osmosis team, the decks that exist in the Cosmos world. We're also very deep in Ethereum. So it's not that we want one or the other. It's that we want to invest in things that we think will be valuable. And hopefully each of these ecosystems can enable different use cases going forward. And I think more and more we'll see people making design decisions for all the right reasons, right? Not everyone necessarily needs massively high TPS, but at the same time, someone might want that, right? If you're a payment system, what do you want? Probably lower fees and higher you know, throughput. If you're a streaming payments company, for example, right? I'm going to pay you every minute for every podcast that you do. You get a dollar and I'm sending you a dollar every minute that you podcast. Okay. That probably is harder to do on Ethereum than it is on Solana. It's also probably easier to do on an L2, but all of these things have potential trade-offs to think about. So yeah, Solana, I think we're bullish for many reasons, but we're also bullish on many other of these ecosystems as well. So there's not sort of like just one, like, hey, we're only going to invest in this one thing because of this particular reason. So it's really just making sure that founders are thinking about why they're making the design and architectural decisions that they're actually making. Okay, interesting. So you talked about with Anagram, you have kind of the build, advise, invest, but I guess there's Technically, also, if, I don't know, let's call it a fourth leg of the stool. I'm not sure if that's like a proper analogy there, but in Anagram Asset Management, so you have an asset management business as well. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so we launched Anagram and we sold equity, as you mentioned. And so we raised a good amount of capital so we could both hire people and invest. And then the market really cratered and FTX blows up and it just felt like everywhere we were looking, there was more and more of an explicit financial capital opportunity. And so in order to take better advantage of that, we wanted to launch a more traditional, I'll put that in air quotes, fund structure. Our fund structure is also relatively unique in the way it's structured to take advantage of some of these first principles of crypto that I was mentioning before. That said, within Anagram, the holding company, we had historically focused really on building and advising first and foremost. And then when we were investing, we were making strategic decisions. We think that this is 
a project that would fit nicely with something we're building, or it's something that we would want to build on top of. We were trying to find investments where we weren't necessarily leading the deal. We were just following in. But our bet was that there would be strategic benefit to the balance sheet overall, as well as a financial uplift to the value of our NAV at the end of that investment window. Within crypto, though, there was this financial opportunity that opened up where we felt we had all of these tools from investment diligence, sourcing, and structuring, but then also the ability to help with things like an architectural decision because of our engineering team. And so we decided that it would benefit us to launch a fund where we could deploy explicitly financial capital, but think more about what the financial outcomes looked like and think more about leading deals and being a little bit more explicit about how we attack those financial opportunities. So Anagram Asset Management was born out of that thinking, really kind of in the post-FTX demise. And we think of it more of like a multi-strat type of structure where over time in crypto and today, there will be ever-changing opportunities in the marketplace, right? If you think about the life cycle of a crypto asset, you have anything from a pre-seed, very early stage, partnering with the founder of Venture Style Investment to a late stage investment in Bitcoin and everything in between. And across that life cycle, many, many different ways to think about why you should invest in that asset. So Ethereum, you might want to own because you think that there's upside because there'll be more use going forward. You might also want to invest in it because it's a deflationary asset that has yield. By the way, it's the only asset I'm aware of that has both of those two attributes. You might want to be shorted because you think the market, right? There's all of these different ways to monetize assets in the crypto landscape today. And I think as we move forward, we will have more and more ways to generate alpha on these assets, right? Staking wasn't a thing until 2018, really when Tezos launched. And now Lido is one of the biggest protocols in the world because of liquid staking. So every day that passes, I think we'll find new technologies and new ways to not just invest in those new technologies, but also to use those technologies to find new versions of alpha in our space. And so if we can find strategies, we will continue to allocate to those strategies, but then also hope those strategies are beneficial to one another, right? If you think about the space and the expansion of just even the number of L1s that exist today, back in the day, there was only a few founders and they were all building on Ethereum. Now you really need a broader bench to be able to explore all of those and create this sort of top-down and bottoms-up investment process where, yes, you have a thesis, but then the people who are on the ground in Solana are saying, there's a lot of stuff that's going on here. So maybe we should rethink our thesis and be more bullish on Solana or vice versa. Maybe everyone's leaving Solana and we should sell our Solana position. But then also, if you've got a GameFi and a DeFi person and you see those worlds merging together, you want those two versions of the fund and the multi-strat to be able to coordinate with each other and talk about all of the things that are happening as those two spaces are getting closer and closer together. So it's really about creating structural efficiencies across different types of strategies within crypto, both top down and bottom up, but also side to side across each of these unique fund structures. Okay, interesting. And through the different parts of the Anagram business, you guys have the capability to invest in both liquid and illiquid, think like early stage private venture investment assets. How do you feel about kind of the trade-off between doing liquid investing versus early stage venture investing today? We're a part of the market where obviously venture valuations have come down quite drastically. Liquid valuations have come down significantly as well. Do you feel like the two are competing for space for you guys and you have to kind of decide where you allocate? Do you have a preference like today investing in more liquid versus more illiquid assets? I think because of our structure at the holding company, we don't need to think about those decisions. 
as you might in a traditional venture structure. So one of the things that we do is we call capital as we need it. And so let's say we've got a million dollars of cash sitting on the balance sheet. We can invest that into Bitcoin if we think the price has significant upside and like the risk reward is appropriate for us. So we did that post FTX collapse. We bought a bunch of Bitcoin and Ethereum because we thought the price was incredibly compelling. That turned out to be a pretty good investment. And now we still hold those assets. We could sell them at something like 100% gain and recycle those into illiquid investments, or we could continue to hold them. Because we have cash in our balance sheet, we don't need to make that allocation decision. But we also, if we sell the Bitcoin and Ethereum, we're not forced to return that capital to our investors because this is more of a corporate structure. And so we can continue to recycle that capital. So it's not necessarily a one-for-one capital allocation decision that we make. That said, if we did see a great opportunity in a seed stage investment and we had no cash and we had a ton of Bitcoin, then we can make that one-for-one zero-sum decision on the balance sheet. But the idea really for us is what is the most productive asset? Is it cash or Bitcoin or a seed stage venture bet? And there's only so many seed stage venture bets you can make at any one time. That said, I think there's many, many compelling versions of that to be done in today's market. So when we see those opportunities, we will absolutely attack them. And you're absolutely correct that valuations have compressed massively. And so we've been taking advantage of that on the private side. That said, we also are exposed to liquid assets because we do have balance sheet capacity to do so. When it comes to Anagram Asset Management, we also structured our funds such that they were dedicated vehicles for dedicated opportunities. So we have a liquid fund that actually charges lower fees than the seed stage venture fund, for example. But if you're interested in seed stage venture, we have that fund. If you're interested in long only liquid venture, as we call it, we have that vehicle. If you're interested in modularity, which is something that is pretty exciting to us as well, we have a vehicle for that too. So what we're trying to do is offer investors an opportunity to pick where they want to be allocated. Or if they don't, we have our own capital allocation model in-house where we can allocate on behalf of investors, say, hey, you know, we think you should have some liquid, some venture, because both of these are, I think, unique opportunities. And also the liquidity profile matches what the underlying asset is, right? So if you're investing in liquid, you don't have to wait 10 years. If you're investing in seed stage venture, you probably do. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I guess kind of curious, like the founders that you're investing in, I mean, do you find they really care how you guys are set up in terms of your structure? Or is it more just what you can offer to us as investors? I mean, I think most people are like, wow, that's cool. Unique structure. Haven't heard that before. But I also don't think most people like they're not going to choose Anagram over someone else because of that structure. I think our structure just makes our day job easier and better and more productive in some ways because of this interoperability. Founders, I think at the end of the day, in today's market, just want the money. (laughs) They don't even care what you're going to offer. There's enough people that are running out of runway or just launching and just want to get the capital raised, that really financial capital to them is at a premium to human capital. Whereas in a bull market, crypto, effectively, you can print private money for free on a website. So it's easier for us in a market like that to say, hey, we can provide you with our talent team, with our engineering team, with all of these things that a lot of people maybe don't have. Oh, you want help with your front end? Cool. John will come in and actually build that for you. So Yes, I think all of the things that we can do are wildly beneficial to us across the business cycle. But I do think it's impactful in different ways, depending upon where you are in that cycle. Yeah, it makes sense. I guess just to elaborate on that a bit, I mean, yeah, as a fund of funds, we see 
in the current market, how difficult it is for venture funds to raise capital. Are you seeing that have an impact on difficulty of startups to raise capital? What is the financing environment look like right now for startups? Yeah, I think it's tough. If I'm an allocator, let's just start at the top two venture funds or anything. I haven't seen a distribution probably in a year, and I probably won't for another two years or whenever it is, right? No one at, whether it's KKR or a crypto fund, people don't want to sell assets in this market, right? Everyone thinks that there's an uptick coming at some point in the next cycle. So let's hold on to these, therefore no distributions, therefore no cash to send to the next version of Anagram 2 or whatever it is. So the allocations to venture funds, I think are few and far between these days. And therefore people who have existing cash on their balance sheet are ever more conservative with that, or they've already gone through their fund and are trying to raise their next fund, but probably having a difficult time of it. It's a tough market to raise capital in for sure. And yes, that absolutely sprinkles down to the venture founders that are launching. I also think though, that it means you get more high quality products and people with higher conviction, right? If you're going to leave Coinbase to go start a company, you are probably going to have higher conviction in that today because the math that it requires to go and do that in a harder funding environment, the risk reward has changed dramatically. And so you, I think, just get a higher quality founder and product and not everyone's trying to create a new PFP project and raise $100 million on a billion dollar valuation in their seed round. So I think that is just beneficial to the market. And then if I'm just thinking about the risk curve generally as a capital allocator, if interest rates are at zero, it makes sense that Bitcoin's at 60K and like I can invest in your $100 million round because that's still a potential compelling return relative to what I get inside on the curve versus today, interest rates are at five, like the Bitcoin adjusted price. We can argue about what that is, but it's probably something closer to 40,000 on an interest rate or risk adjusted basis. So what do you have to then get for a seed stage valuation to get the respective return to that 5%? Once you get that far outside the risk curve, way more important to think about what the upside is relative to the risk free rate. And that's where I think the math changes for an allocator of capital into a new project. And so for us, we've never really invested in high valuation things, but even more so now we want to be constrained in our thinking about valuation to a degree that it would have been hard to in the last bull run. Yeah, makes sense. And for context for folks, I think spot price of Bitcoin is about 34K as we're having this conversation. So so you talked about some things you guys are interested and excited about. I mean, are there any parts of the market that you're just wholly uninterested in and just very unexcited about that you're seeing capital flowing to? There's nothing that I'm wholly uninterested in. I think there are areas that I maybe know less about, or I could be saying controversial things about, right? Like I don't know much about gaming. It's just not a core area of expertise. I'm not a gamer, even though my son wishes I would play Zelda with him. Like I don't have it in me to really understand it. And it's easy for me to say, I don't know it as well as other people in the market. So that's maybe like one good example. I also think maybe people got ahead of themselves on gaming and game five because of things like Axie Infinity, where people were really gaming to earn as opposed to playing a great game. And maybe there are things that we can use in the crypto ecosystem to improve existing gaming experiences, like the finances, like the ownership. But I don't know that that's going to be, I don't know that we immediately need all games to be on chain. So 
I do think over time that will probably be something that happens, but I'm not personally excited about that in the way that I am about something like payments. Another one maybe that is, I think, interesting, but for me is harder to get comfortable with investing in is the real world assets narrative that is taking place today. I think it's really interesting to think about putting watches, wine, luxury assets on chain are to have their provenance tracking and all this. I'm also not sure that like that's a massive venture upside type of opportunity. Nonetheless, it's really interesting to me. I'm intrigued by it. And so I want to figure out what's happening in that space. And then you also have like the other RWA narrative is things like putting treasuries on chain. And I do think that there's some interesting things happening there. We're close with the Ondo team, for example. I think they've really been able to grow that business incredibly well and I'm excited that your high yielding treasuries are are now on chain. At the same time, my hope is that we issue those things natively on chain in the future, as opposed to sort of just porting something that already exists on chain. And so it is also, I think, on the back of that, that I am very interested in, but also have a higher bar in DeFi. I think DeFi is something that will continue to expand. And I'm hopeful that people start to create new financial instruments as opposed to things that we already have in traditional markets, like money markets and exchanges. I think that one of the problems that we had in DeFi as it exploded was the copy paste, right? If we have a DEX on Ethereum, we need a DEX on every L2 and then we need a DEX on. And so is that a venture bet? At what point does it no longer become a truly novel idea? It might be a profitable idea. It might be something that we need, but is it something that is going to be the all-out winner? And it might be. I still am very much interested in the space. Something I think is really interesting, though, is if you flip that on its head and think about a lot of the things that we've been talking about from interest rates and treasuries and how to bring DeFi and real-world assets on chain, I think about Ethereum and Ethereum staking as the pathway for what I would call institutional DeFi adoption. And I don't think institutional DeFi adoption happens because Goldman Sachs starts using Uniswap or Compound or Aave. I think it happens when the BlackRock Ethereum ETF begins staking those assets. Now you've got $10 billion of retail and institutional exposure to Ethereum that is participating in what I would classify as some version of DeFi in active on-chain staking and earning some form of what I would call like air quotes yield on that. That then is something that we will have a series of derivatives and other financial instruments on the back of that will create a crazy market. But also that crazy market will be pinned to the digital interest rate, which would be in this example, the Ethereum staking yield or staking returns. And that's, I think, where now you have, I'll call it the interest rate market of the digital economy that you can then price other assets on. So if I'm going to go put money into Compound today, if I'm going to get 1% on ETH, should I do that or should I stake it? Let's stake it. Would I buy on-chain treasuries or ETH if I can stake it? Right now, you can actually have an actual digital interest rate that's based on something as opposed to an algorithm and a lending model. And then from here, you will have all these people exposed to these novel financial products, but not realize they're actually exposed to them. This is the way that this institutional DeFi, in my mind, will happen. And that is, I think, like one of the great adoption narratives that we'll start to see, right? If you think about today's world, credit default swaps, any structured product, all these financial instruments, these are products that 
we don't necessarily know that we're using every day. Like I have a mortgage, but that doesn't mean I'm allocated to RMBS personally. Maybe in my personal private wealth portfolio or the banks are doing these things on your behalf. I think much in the same way, all of these products will be obfuscated away from the user in a way. It's not like we're concerned about the quote daily active user of a financial product. We're not concerned about the daily active user of gold. They just have a lot of intrinsic value because of the use that they have behind the scenes. And I think many of these new pieces of staking and related derivatives of financial infrastructure and the digital interest rate economy will be a massive adoption mechanism, even though we don't all know it. Okay, that's really cool. So I'd like to end things today on a less serious note. So let's say you're not doing crypto or finance or investing for a career. What would you be doing for your life to make money? I would probably just open the Steppen app and go for a run for eight hours a day and see if I can earn enough to support my family. That's probably the biggest passion I have outside of work. So in other words, you'd be pretty broke. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing that wouldn't pay the bills. But my other real passion is wine. I've been an avid wine collector. I've, I've made wine here and there in the past. So I don't know if I would have it in me to do that, but I think that's maybe where I would go, just maybe move to Burgundy and be a farmer and hopefully become a better winemaker and really learn how to do that well. That's been my passion since my dad started teaching me about it when I was about 18 years old. So people often ask me why I don't work in wine. And I say, it's too much of a hobby, but now crypto has become a hobby too. So I guess it's okay to actually work in something that you're passionate about and you truly love. It's really, I think when you find the crossover of not feeling like you're actually working, that your work becomes wildly successful. And that's one of the main pieces of like cultural ethos that we try and instill at Anagram, which is if you feel like you're working, you probably shouldn't be working here. The first and most important thing that you can do at Anagram is to have fun. And if you're having fun, it will never feel like you're working and therefore you'll work harder than anyone else around you. And there's no way that will not be successful in this endeavor. And so it's hard to imagine working outside of crypto now after having been in it for this extended period of time. But I still am excited to open a nice bottle of wine tonight. Nice. Yeah. I mean, enjoying what you do for work is a beautiful combination if you can find it. Is the wine that you make any good in the past? I would argue no. (laughs) (laughs) We have had some success. There's one bottling that we had, which about 50% of it was deeply flawed and another 50% came out pretty well. But I had a good mentor, so I have him to thank for all of that. Yeah, I won't ask you for a bottle, but at least you enjoyed it. So that's great. (laughs) I'll bring you two to make sure you have at least one good one for sure. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. So if people want to learn more about yourself and Anagram or follow you online, where can they find you? Great question. I don't think I've ever been online. I have zero social media accounts and I've never tweeted. And I think the only podcasting I've ever done is actually with you. So that said, anyone who does (laughs) want to learn more about Anagram, I love to chat about crypto and Anagram. They're my two favorite things. So feel free to reach out to me, jay at anagram.xyz and our website, anagram.xyz. You can find not very much information there, but you can link to our blog where we talk a little bit about that progressive web app I was talking about earlier. And that's a place where we'll continue to post more and more material. But yeah, also happy to share plenty more that isn't there for anyone who is interested. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Joe. Really appreciate it. And we'll talk again soon. Amazing. Thanks, Brooke. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside the Hut with your host, Brooke Pollock. You can find this and other episodes on any podcast player or at our website, www.hutcapital.com.